This morning's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 1 to 6, and is page 968 on the Church Bibles. Introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Please keep the passage open in front of you, page uh, 968, if you've closed your Bibles, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray again that you would teach us as we come to your word. Thank you, it is a privilege, it is a joy to be able to open your word together. And we pray you would teach us, give us humble hearts ready to listen and learn and be changed by you. Amen. Well, we're continuing to ask the question how we are to approach God. How can we approach God? Uh, This is the most important issue that there could possibly be. How do we approach the living God? How can we approach him? How can we come into his presence? When uh, you go on holiday, when you go into another country, you generally need things with you, otherwise you'll get turned away. Nowadays, things have got more complicated. You need not just your passport, but maybe a COVID pass as well. And you need to have those things or you're not getting in. What about when coming into the presence of God? What do we need with us in order to be able to come in? Well, we're looking at the Beatitudes, these uh, sentences at the beginning of the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And there are, we're saying, eight of these Beatitudes. Blessed are thee. Uh, And we said last week, they aren't describing eight different groups of people, they're describing one group of people, uh, those who are to come to God. And the first four are about how we approach God, how we come into God's presence. They aren't just about the first time you come into God's presence, they are to be our attitude as we come to God, every time we come to God, as we go through our Christian lives, they are to be our standing before God. And so we looked at the first two last week, and just a brief recap. The first one is about being poor in spirit. That is, coming to God, recognising our account before God is empty. We come to God with nothing. Nothing to brag about, nothing to be proud of, nothing to point to. Our account is empty. And mourning, that is, seeing our wrongdoing in our lives and grieving for it, not excusing it, but bringing it before God openly, laying it before God and grieving for our sin. This is how we are to come to God, poor in spirit and mourning. Next, we come to the next two things which we're going to look at today, which is that we are to be meek and we are to hunger and thirst. What do they mean? First, meek. I wonder what you think of when you think of someone who is meek. I have to say, I probably would have to admit, I I don't really know what that means, or I didn't before thinking about it this last week. 
What is someone who is meek? The online dictionaries don't particularly help us. One of them said this, that being meek included being docile, overly submissive, spiritless and tame. Is that what Jesus is saying? Blessed are the spiritless and tame. Hmm. And then the example that they give, they often give a sentence, don't they, with the, with the word in it, which is, she brought her meek little husband along. <laughs> is this what Jesus is encouraging us to? No, that just sounds pathetic. Don Carson, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, says this. He's a Bible scholar. He says this. Meekness is not as many people imagine, a weakness. It, is not to be, it must not be confused with being wishy-washy. A meek person is not necessarily indecisive or timid. He is not so unsure of himself that he could be pushed over by a hard slap with a wet noodle. Still less is meekness to be confused with mere affability. Some people are just naturally nice and easygoing, but then again, so are some dogs. Meekness goes much deeper. So what is it? What is meekness? If it's not those things, what is it? Now, I found it, it takes a little bit of thinking, a bit of uh, time to get your head around, and we begin uh, this morning, but it does take a bit more thinking. It flows out of the previous two Beatitudes. As we've said before, they build on one another. They're a golden chain. You need the ones before in order to understand the ones that follow. And so it flows out of our poverty of spirit, that we come before God with our account before him empty, knowing that it is empty, and our mourning for our sin. And someone who is like that, who knows their poverty and knows that they mourn, will then have their view of and their way that they approach God and the way they approach other people shaped by that. Because our tendency is to place ourselves in the centre of our lives, to place ourselves on the throne of our lives, needing fulfilment, honour, glory from others. But the meek person, knowing their poverty of spirit, knowing their mourning, will not be like that. They will take themselves off the throne of their lives. To change the analogy, we think uh, of the sun in our galaxy. We think of ourselves a bit like the sun, wanting to outshine all others and wanting everyone to revolve around us. But the meek person knows they are not in the centre uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, his book on the Sermon on the Mount is fantastic. It's enormous, but it is fantastic. Uh, and if you ever wanted a book to read on the Sermon on the Mount, get it. It is very worthwhile reading. Anyway, he says on this, The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself. He feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. And he goes on and he says, the meek person does not assert themselves. That is, they won't push themselves forward. They don't make demands for themselves. They don't stand on their rights. But rather, they will set them aside for the sake of others. Now, as I describe that, you might think, well, that could be mistaken for weakness. Yes, it could be, but it isn't weakness. There are many examples in the Bible of meek people. But the great example is that of the Lord Jesus. That song that we just sung, Gentle and Lowly, 
The word in Matthew 11, verse 29, when Jesus calls himself gentle and lowly, the word for gentle is the same word as this. It could be translated meek and lowly. Now, do we think of Jesus as someone who is docile, oversubmissive, spiritless and tame? No, we don't. But he was meek. He gave up his privilege, his position. As it says in Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now that is meekness. It is not weakness. But he laid aside any claim that he could have. And he is the one person who could claim wonderful rights and privileges, yet he laid it all aside. So to be meek involves what Jesus calls denying ourselves. It is to lay aside our claim to the throne of our lives and to put Jesus there. And Jesus says... The meek shall inherit the earth, which is incredible, isn't it? That's exactly not what we think. We think, who should inherit the earth? It's going to be the bold, the mighty, the assertive, the entrepreneurs, the wise investors, the ambitious. Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. When? Well, it's kind of a now and a not yet. Interestingly, in the books, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, he says, in some ways, the meek do inherit the earth now, in that those who are genuinely meek, who've taken themselves off the throne of their lives, Jesus in the centre, are incredibly content, and therefore inherit the earth now. And you could look elsewhere in the Bible to see what we have now, and it's incredible. We'll come back to that uh, maybe some other time in a sermon. But in a sense, we inherit it now, and yet there is the not yet fulfillment when Jesus creates the new heavens and the new earth, and there is a promise that that will be ours if we are meek, if we come to Jesus in the way that the Beatitudes tell us to. So Jesus says, blessed are the meek, those who are not on the throne of their lives. And then, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We go on to the next slide. Thank you. Now this is the pinnacle of the first four. The previous three have all been building up to, leading to this. This is essential, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. In this sentence, there is summed up the wonderful grace of God. There is summed up the way to approach God. We need all the previous three, and then this one is essential, and it tells us of God's incredible grace. It's a wonderful sentence that we could dwell on for a long time. What is righteousness? What is righteousness? If we were to hunger and thirst for it, what is righteousness? The Bible talks about righteousness in two ways. There is a righteousness that we receive and a righteousness we are to live. Now, the righteousness that we receive is this. You see, in order to come into God's presence, we must be righteous. 
We must be pure. Psalm 24 asks this question. It says, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence, in his holy place? That's our question, isn't it? Who can get in? What have you got to have with you? And it answers the question. It says this, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. One who is pure in heart, Only they can come before God. In other words, only those who are righteous. But we are not. (coughs) Excuse me. Hence, we've seen this already in the first three of the Beatitudes. If we're mourning for our sin, for instance, if we're poor in spirit, we know that we are not pure in heart. We know we are unrighteous. We know we cannot get into God's presence, therefore. And the big question in the Bible is, how could we ever be righteous again? How could we ever be pure? How could it ever happen? And the answer is, you need to receive a righteousness. A righteousness received from God that he will give you if you come to him. A righteousness that he achieved through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He achieves it and he says, you need to come to me for this righteousness and I will give it to you. As Paul says in Philippians, he talks about himself having become a Christian. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So it's a righteousness that is purely from God, one we need to receive on the basis of Jesus' sacrificial death through trust in him. We need to be given it. The second way that righteousness is used in the Bible is a lived righteousness. A lived righteousness. That we would live... (coughs) Excuse me that we would live in the way God commands us to. <clears throat> Sorry, I might just grab that. <clears throat> so, the received righteousness and then the lived righteousness. That is living in a way which pleases God day to day, day by day. Not just in external conformity, not just in the things that we do, but in a heart that is righteous. And Jesus, as you go through the Sermon on the Mount, makes this very clear that it's not just about doing the right thing, it is about a heart. So it's not just about not murdering, it's about not being angry. It's not just about not committing adultery, it's about not lusting in our hearts. And so this righteousness is a righteousness of purity of life, of living for God day by day. There are two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness we receive from God that gets us right with him, and then there is the righteousness that is a lived righteousness day by day. They are linked, but the Bible uses two different ways of of referring to the word righteousness. Now, Jesus is saying we need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean? Well, at the most basic level, we must say, If we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, it must mean we don't have it. We haven't got it. We want it, 
but we haven't got it. This is essential. If you've ever been really thirsty, if you imagine someone who is very thirsty, maybe in the desert, that's always a good place to imagine someone thirsty, isn't it? If they are thirsting, that means they haven't got water, doesn't it? If they'd got a massive tank of water in the desert, they're not thirsting. The reason why they're thirsting is they haven't got water. The reason we would be hungering and thirsting for righteousness is because we don't have it. We don't have the right relationship with God and we don't have the right way of living day by day in our lives. That's why we hunger and thirst for it. And to hunger and thirst for it is not just to say, I realise I don't have righteousness. It's to want it desperately. If you've ever been thirsty, really thirsty, you know it is something that it's painful. It is hard. It is something you can't think of anything else. You need that water. And Jesus is saying that is how we are to be when it comes to righteousness. Desperately wanting our relationship with God to be right and desperately wanting day by day to be living uh, in the right way. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? It is actually very simple, this way of approaching God. And I want to give you an example, a story. It's a story that Jesus told of two people going to pray. And it wonderfully summarises actually the attitude Jesus is talking about in these first four Beatitudes. You could find it, do look it up later, in Luke 18 verses 9 to 14. And it says at the start that Jesus told this story to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. And so he tells the story of two people going to pray in the temple. One a religious leader and one a notorious wrongdoer. The religious leader, a Pharisee, it says, stands on his own to pray. The wrongdoer, the tax collector, stands praying at a distance, his eyes down. And this is what they pray. The Pharisee prays this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, we know, if you know the story, that you are to boo in your heart at this point. You to go, no, he's the baddie. But just consider, this is an attitude we could so easily have, isn't it? Maybe some here do. After all, Jesus doesn't paint this person as saying, I thank you, I have never done anything wrong, that I am utterly perfect. No, no, he starts by just saying, I'm not as bad as those other people. That's what he says, isn't it? I haven't done the really awful things. I'm not a robber. I'm not an evildoer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like that tax collector. Now, might we not do the same thing? I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as those awful people that maybe we see in the news. I'm not as bad as, you know, the, the, the Russian soldiers that we hear about doing awful things. I'm not as bad as, uh, as other people. I'm not as bad as them. And I've done some pretty good things. And that's what he says, isn't it? I fasted twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. I'm pretty good. You know, I I give to charity. I give to appeals. 
And I've done some good things, you know, I, I've volunteered to help at school fairs and I've mown the bit of grass outside my house on the verge, but you don't have to, but you know, I've done it, you know, just because I think I should. I've done some pretty good things and maybe I've done some religious things as well. You know, I've come along to church. I mean, you know, not just every now and then. I've come along frequently. I've, I'm, I do my bit, you know, uh, the religious thing. I'm, I'm all right. The tax collector prays like this. God have mercy on me, a sinner. So which is poor in spirit? The tax collector. Which is mourning? The tax collector. Which is meek? The tax collector. And which is hungering and thirsting for righteousness, knowing they haven't got it, but desperately wanting it? The tax collector. Which goes away right with God? The tax collector, not the Pharisee. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If we don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, and never have, we can be sure we're not Christians. If we think, I don't hunger for this. I don't hunger to be in a right relationship with God. I don't hunger to live the life that pleases him. We aren't Christians. But Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the promise is, they will be filled. This is God's grace. It is only those who will hunger and thirst for righteousness who will be filled. Only those who don't have it, know they don't have it, long for it, God says, I'll fill you. When? When do we get this righteousness? And the answer again is, in one way, immediately. As soon as we come to God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, he gives us that righteousness we thought about, the the righteousness we can only receive. He gives it to us immediately, instantly. We are filled. Jesus says in that parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, the tax collector went home justified. That moment, he is right with God. He is righteous before God. In an instant, we are filled with the righteousness of God. I mean, it's an incredible thing, isn't it? That we could come today, this morning, you could have come here thinking, I don't particularly need righteousness, I'm doing all right, I'm better than those other people, I do good things, I'm okay. And then been struck to the heart this morning that you are not righteous and say to God, actually, God, I realise I don't have this. And I so want it. I need it. And God will say, yes, you're filled. It can happen in a moment. It could happen this morning. You don't need years of thinking about it. You don't need years of showing God how sorry you are. Uh, You don't need to do acts of penance to to prove that you are sorry. No, it can happen in a moment. Utterly filled. And yet, there is also the not yet. 
it is a progressive thing as well because the relationship with God is fixed in a moment. You receive that righteousness straight away. But the living righteousness, the doing and the thinking and the speaking, that takes time. Time for the Spirit to change us as his word is applied more and more to our hearts and lives. As you revel in the righteousness you receive from God, as you live on the platform of God's grace in your life, as that transforms you, as you hear his word, him changing us to live day by day according to the way he wants us to. So there is both a filling and therefore a thirst quenching and yet an ongoing thirst and hungering. Because we know our relationship with God is restored through Christ if we come to him, which is the deepest joy and the greatest thirst quenched. But we also see our ongoing battle with sin and the longing for God to keep changing us. And as he does, we taste more of his goodness and his grace. Lloyd-Jones again says this. You see, the Christian is one who, at one who at one and the same time is hungering and thirsting, yet is filled. And the more he is filled, the more he hungers and thirsts. That's the Christian experience. It's a wonderful filling as well as a hungering and thirsting. So here is our approach to God. How do we get in? What do we need with us? Is there a passport? Is there a COVID pass we need? Here it is. It is none of those things. We are to be poor in spirit. We are to mourn. We are to be meek. And we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is the only way we can enter God's presence. And if we do, God in his grace meets us and fills us.